So, like I mentioned, we're going to be talking about world vision and things like that. And my goal is not to just answer those for you guys, but to help you guys see the responsibility that you guys have as Christians to help accomplish the Great Commission and what that looks like, not just here in Chico, but in the world. So, to start out, we're actually going to watch a, it's like seven or eight minute video from a sermon from John Piper. Uh, maybe a couple of you guys have seen it before, but it's really great. We're just going to go ahead and watch it whenever John's ready. And yeah, be back after that. You don't have to know a lot of things in order to make a huge difference for the Lord in the world. But you do need to know a few things that are great and be willing to live for them and die for them. People that make a difference in the world are not people who have mastered a lot of things. They are people who have been mastered by a very few things that are very, very great. If you want your life to count, you don't have to have a high IQ and you don't have to have a high EQ. You don't have to be smart. You don't have to have good looks. You don't have to be from a good family or from a good school. You just have to know a few basic, simple, glorious, majestic, obvious, unchanging, eternal things and be gripped by them and be willing to lay down your life for them. Which is why anybody in this crowd can make a worldwide difference. Because it isn't you. It's what you're gripped with. But one of the really sad things about this moment right now is that there are hundreds of you in this crowd who do not want your life to make a difference. All you want is to be liked. Maybe finish school, get a good job, find a husband or a wife, a nice house, a nice car, long weekends, good vacations, grow old healthy, have a fun retirement, die easy, no hell. And that's all you want. You don't give a rip whether your life counts on this earth for eternity. That's a tragedy in the making. That is a tragedy in the making. About three weeks ago, we got news at our church that Ruby Eliason and Laura Edwards were killed in Cameroon. Ruby Eliason, over 80, single all her life, a nurse, poured her life out for one thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the sick and the poor in the hardest and most unreached places. Laura Edwards, a medical doctor in the Twin Cities, and any retirement, partnering up with Ruby, also pushing 80, and going from village to village in Cameroon. And the brakes give way, over a cliff they go, and they're dead instantly. And I ask my people, is this a tragedy? Two women in their 80s, almost, a, a whole life devoted 
Jesus Christ magnified among the poor and the sick in the hardest places and 20 years after most of their American counterparts had begun to throw their lives away on trivialities in Florida and New Mexico, fly into eternity with a death in a moment. Is this a tragedy, I ask? It is not a tragedy. I'll read you what a tragedy is. I've got a little article here from Reader's Digest. You don't read Reader's Digest, I know that. But there is a generation who does. This is a tragedy. Title of the article, Start Now, Retire Early, February 1998. Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. That's a tragedy. That's a tragedy, and there are people in this country that are spending billions of dollars to get you to buy it. And I get 40 minutes to plead with you, don't buy it. With all my heart, I plead with you, don't buy that dream. The American dream. A nice house, a nice car, a nice job, a nice family, a nice retirement, collecting shells as the last chapter before you stand before the creator of the universe to give an account with what you did. Here it is, Lord, my shell collection. Look, Lord. My shell collection. And I've got a good swing. And look at my boat. God. Look at my boat, God. Well, not for Ruby. And not for Laura. Don't waste your life. Don't waste it. So I hope you guys enjoyed that video. That stood out to me a lot. So much so that I played the entire thing for you guys tonight. Um, the two things that stood out to me the most from that were the first one was just the death of Ruby and Laura. Like that kind of sticks out a little bit. And he explained it of the tragedy, not a tragedy. And I mean, I definitely agree with him. And like, it makes sense, you know, like I agree. But when I first watched it, it just felt a little weird. It almost felt like offensive to them. I don't know if you guys felt that way for a quick second when he said it wasn't a tragedy. And I think the way, the reason why I felt that is because whether I know it or not, I am gripped by the American dream. You know, it's what we're raised with, everything else. And we're just taught, you know, easy retirement, having a nice boat, whatever it is, a nice house, kids, neighbors, whatever else. That's good. You want that. Dying at all. That's bad. That's just how it is. That's just how I was raised. It's what you, I don't know, would dispute it. So that's why it was so weird to hear tonight. And as a Christian, I think that we should really ask ourselves, like, is that true? We should ask ourselves, like what John Piper said, like, is that really a tragedy for that to happen? Second Corinthians 5.1 says, For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Ruby and Laura are no longer in an earthly tent. They're with Jesus. They're in an eternal house in heaven with Jesus right now. James 4.14 Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. 
What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. If this is the case, shouldn't our end goal be something different than a nice retirement? Even if we believe that we have a different purpose and we don't care about retirement, are those sentiments actually real in our lives or do we just believe it and think it's a good thing? Are we living for Christ today or are we just doing good Christian things while continuing our American lifestyle? The second thing that stood out to me uh, was just a list of worldly things that he talked about. You know, the husband, the wife, the kids, the retirement, all of those things that can become our idols. They're good things and they can be blessings from God, but what he's talking about is when we live our whole lives for those things. It can be easy to find some of those even that resonate with you guys, you know, whether it's a nice career, getting out of college fast, having less loans, you know, whatever it is, less debt. But like John Piper said in the video, we need to realize that our lives right now can count for eternity. And it's a tragedy if we miss this. This is my first point of tonight, which is that your life can affect eternity. Your life can affect eternity. You can be the person to bring someone else out of the darkness and into the light. You don't have to just collect shells, do whatever else to make you happy. You can make an eternal difference in someone's life. All of you guys in the room have ownership of the gospel. You guys understand it. And because of that, that means you have an obligation to share it. John 14, 6 says this. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is only one right answer. Millions of people right now have lived their entire lives unaware of this. You have the opportunity to hand it out, whether it's today, tomorrow, on campus next semester, overseas five years from now, at your job 20 years from wherever you are. You have the opportunity to share that with someone. Don't waste it. I wanna take the next five minutes for you guys to discuss at your table your thoughts from the video, and uh, which of the parts of life you are most tempted to idolize right now with where you're at and why you're tempted. You know, maybe it's a family thing where your parents have really good careers and they expect that out of you. Whatever it is, uh, the discussion questions should be up here in just a minute. Uh, you guys can have five minutes to kind of talk about those with your table. All right, go for it. All right, well, hope you guys had a good discussion. How many of you have re read this book, Giddy Greer? All right. Like about half a little more. I'm going to read a passage from it, actually like a page and a half. Uh, if you guys remember, it's at the beginning of the book. It talks about like a distraction monster. That's kind of the theme. So I'm going to jump in and just read it. Okay. Thinking about the reality of death helps us gain the right perspective on life. We all understand, of course, in a propositional sense that we are going to die. But understanding that cognitively and living in a conscious awareness of it are not the same thing. The original lie that Satan whispered to Adam and Eve was you will not surely die. He tried to blind her to the reality of death. It's still what he whispers in our subconscious today. Even when we know, propositionally, that we are going to die, he convinces us to live oblivious to how close the reality of death is and how permanent eternity will be. The 17th century French philosopher Blaise Pascal had a great analogy for this. He described their life like a giant party full of happy people, loud music, and dancing, during which a monster unexpectedly bursts through the doors, grabs a random party goer, mauls them in front of everyone, and drags their bloody corpse out of the room. Everyone watches in horror, and after it is over, stares at each other in stunned silence for a few moments. But then the band kicks back up, and everyone returns to their frivolity, putting the horrendous display out of their minds. This horror is repeated every few moments until it becomes apparent that the monster is eventually coming for everyone in the room. Yet still, the party goes on. That monster, Pascal said, is our impending death, and our preferred way of dealing with it is distraction. Turn up the music. Our society, of course, has now elevated the art of distraction to epic levels. TVs are on everywhere. Autoplay on Netflix tries to get me to watch one episode of The Office after another until I burn through all nine seasons. Your phone is probably alerting you to at least 10 things happening right now that need your attention, as I can hear it's happening. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna stop right there for the sake of time, but 
that's a pretty big concept, you know, that whole idea of distraction and how real it is to the monster of death. To see how the how God sees the world and not how we like to see it as just music and a party, we need a right perspective. You can't get this by scrolling through social media, hanging out and playing games with friends, or going about your day like normal. You need to understand the reality of life by having a right understanding of death and the spiritual battle that we are currently in. Multiple times in the Bible, the word of God is referred to as a sword. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. In Ephesians 6.17, we are called to take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. We are in a spiritual war, and a sword is a necessity. If we aren't daily diving into the word of God, it can be easy for us to lose sight of the spiritual battle we are in, and we start to conform to the patterns of this world and start partying again, listening to music, ignoring what we just saw. This brings me to my second point, which is to live a wartime lifestyle. Live a wartime lifestyle. A verse that's helped me with this idea of living like in a war, you know, the sense of urgency, how prayer works in wartime. It's kind of like a walkie-talkie, I've heard it be described, how it's no longer just a thing to, you know, get your problems out at night or whatever else, but you have a direct connection to God in war, and you can pray and talk to him about the urgencies that you experience during the day. But a verse that's really helpful with that is Ephesians 5, 15, and 16. If you guys haven't heard of this or memorized it, I would definitely recommend it. Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Jim Elliott, a missionary in the 1950s that died trying to evangelize to a tribe in Ecuador, has an accurate perspective of that reality. He once said this, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain which he cannot lose. Giving up the temporary and gaining the eternal Sounds like a no-brainer, but the unfortunate reality is that few people actually live like that. The reason why? Not having an accurate perspective. We are in a world that daily tells us the opposite of Jim Elliot. If you aren't taking what you can now, you're missing out. The only way for you to succeed is to have more than your neighbor, more than the other person you're up against. When we are tempted by ideas like that, we need to combat them with scripture. That's my third point which is to adjust your perspective daily with scripture. Luke 18, 29 through 30 says this, truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Doesn't it sound like Jim Elliot had his quiet time on that passage when he said that quote? While the world wants us to gain as much as we can and to have so much that we can enjoy life to the fullest every day that we live by its standards, Jesus is calling us to sacrifice what we have to get even greater riches in all of eternity. The best part about this sacrifice is that Jesus cares for you immensely. He loves you. He's not trying to rip you off and see how much he can take from you. There's actually an incredible amount, I'm sure you guys know this, but of blessings and promises throughout the Bible for people that choose to be faithful to him. Matthew 6.33, one of my favorite verses, is pretty clear about that. It says, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Uh, just before that verse, for some context, he's talking about like the grass and the flowers and birds and how they have homes, and how much more he cares for us than anything else on the earth that you can see. If we put ourselves first to get all that we can in this life, not only will we not get it, but we will miss out on the treasures in eternity. If we choose to put Jesus first, not only will we receive what is promised in eternity, but we will get his blessings here as well. All right, I have another quick discussion for you guys. We're gonna do three or four minutes for this one, just for the sake of time, because I'm talking slowly, so it will be three or four hours at this rate. Um, go ahead and get started. I'll be back up here soon. Cool. Well, that's the end of our first page. We're going to move on to the second section, which is missions overview. A little bit more.
more focused on what we're talking about today, which is world vision, uh, what missions look like, some different key terms and things like that. Yeah, like where it got started, things like that. We're going to get started with where missions got started. And that's actually my first point of the night for this section, which is missions start with the Bible. Genesis 12, 1 through 3 says this. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That's right, it starts with the Bible. It wasn't some way for Christians to make money in the 1800s. It was straight from Genesis. The Lord called out to Abram, calling him to leave to create a new nation where all people on earth will be blessed. Because everyone who is in the body of Christ is referred to as a descendant of Abraham, we can now take personal responsibility for this. My second point is that missions continue with you. Fast forward, Matthew 28, 19, part of the Great Commission. Jesus says this, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Fast forward again, end of the New Testament, Revelation 7, 9. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. So this is what we have. Beginning of the Bible, Abram is sent out to start a great nation. In the middle, start of the New Testament, Jesus gives us the great commission to go out to all nations and share the gospel. At the end of the Bible, in Revelation 7-9, we see people from all nations, tribes, peoples, languages, praising God at the end. It sounds pretty great, right? But rewind a little bit. What, what happened from Genesis to Matthew? I thought everyone was going to be a great nation, right? That's what he says, is all people will be under him. But here in Matthew, he's having to tell, Jesus is telling us, hey, get out there, go spread the gospel. It's not to the ends of the earth. As John Piper puts it, missions exist because worship doesn't. Missions exist because worship doesn't. It's a pretty simple but meaningful statement. If everyone worshiped God, knew who he was, had access to him, we wouldn't need to spend money and take a summer and go out to some random place. Jim Elliott didn't have to give his life preaching to a tribe. They would already have God. They would already be worshiping. But this is not the case. Because of our broken world and the sin that covers us, there are not only people that aren't in Abram's holy nation, but entire nations, tribes, peoples, and languages. Isn't that heartbreaking? These groups are called unreached people groups. An unreached people group is a people group among which there is no indigenous community of believing Christians with adequate numbers or resources to evangelize this group without outside assistance. To get into some data here, as of last year, 2020, there are 3.14 billion people that are in unreached people groups. 3.14 billion. And out of that huge number, 97% of them are in what's called the 1040 window. The 1040 window is a rectangular area of North Africa, Middle East, and Asia, approximately between 10 degrees north and 40 degrees north. It's often called the resistant belt and includes a majority of the world's Muslims, Hindus and Buddhists. Most of the unreached people fall under five different religions, uh, which we can label as thumb. This stands for tribal, Hindu, unreligious, Muslim, and Buddhist. Tribal, Hindu, unreligious, Muslim, and Buddhist. All right, so instead of discussion questions for this section, I actually pulled up a page from Joshua Project for the Unreached of the Day. I don't know if you guys have heard about this resource. It's amazing. Uh, there's an app for it. Definitely get it. But there should be right here the Tahu Amdo people of China. So there's a picture of them, where they are just in China. And these are some interesting stats about them. Uh, on the app, you can go through for a couple minutes and see what percentage is Christian, 
Do they have Bibles in like the right languages for these people? Uh, is there like a story project, a Jesus film for them? So that's interesting. And on page either three or four of your handout, there is more information. And so for five or 10 minutes this time, instead of a discussion, you guys are actually gonna pray at your tables um, for these people, the Tahu Amdo people of China. It's today is their day. Like if you go on the Joshua Project app for every other day, they have a new group or people or tribe every single day. So we're gonna be praying for them. Uh, go ahead and get started. And also I had Matthew 9, 36 through 38 is on the bottom of that. It's an amazing verse. I want you guys to also pray through that with that people group of praying for laborers, asking God to send out laborers into that harvest field, that specific harvest field. Yeah, go for it. We are gonna do five to 10 minutes of that. I'll come back up and then we're gonna take a quick five minute break for snacks and restroom and stuff after. Go ahead and get started. All right. It's fun standing up here and seeing you guys look at me before you like run back. <laughs> also, I understand how teachers feel when one kid is really annoying in class and then the teacher's like, okay, just for that, I'm keeping you all until 2.54 now, you know, like a few minutes after. I'm like, okay, 10.01. Oh, David went up 10.02. Oh, there's another one, 10.03. <laughs> We'll go ahead and get started. I had to turn the music up loud so that way I could fade it down, you know, just, just how it goes. We're going to be moving on to page four, I believe, which is why missions matter. There's two main sections left. Uh, these are going to get a little bit heavier, maybe, and I'm going to go a little bit faster to make sure we can get through all of the content. So we're going to go ahead and get started. So uh, now we're looking at why missions matter. So we looked at it. We saw, okay. There's a lot of people unreached. There's a big window over near Asia. There's a lot of people that don't know Christ. Just sounds like a lot of numbers. But now we're going to say, like, why does it matter to you guys sitting in here tonight? You know, it sounds like a Christian problem. And when you hear statistics, it can be easy to think of just a number. And you guys know the saying, when it's everyone's problem, it's no one's problem. So it seems kind of hard to tackle, you know, 40, 50 of us in this room. 3.14 billion people. Like, what can we really do? The good news is there is a reason, another reason to care about missions, even when it seems hard to feel like you can make a difference. The first point that I'm going to be making tonight of why it matters is because God told us to. And the first point is we are commanded to go. We are commanded to go and make disciples in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission. John 20, 21 says, Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Again, in Acts 13, 47. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. God has called us to participate in his work for his kingdom. And after reading over verses like these, it's hard to make up a valid reason for not fulfilling the work that God has created us to do. It doesn't matter if you're tempted to choose a different path because you might have to sacrifice things like comfort or security or free time, or because over here you maybe had a bad relationship in the past or a hard experience with someone that was a Christian or a so-called Christian. Regardless of those, we are called to step up and live a life for Jesus, regardless of our circumstances or our feelings in the moment. And it will be hard. It's not a, oh, yeah, just push that aside and keep going. You'll, You'll feel it you're going to still experience feelings. You're going to have hard experiences with other Christians or with wanting comfort or the things of this world. They're still going to keep coming. Well, that's not an excuse not to. Jesus has commanded us to go. The enemy does not want you to share the gospel, which has the power to save souls for eternity. He loves it when we get together in a, a church like this, do Christian things and talk about bettering ourselves and then go home and live a quiet life really seeking our own interest, you know, having out or hanging out, having good times, doing our hobbies privately. But as soon as we take a big step of faith, whether it's going overseas or sharing the gospel with your neighbor or even like on a PCS on Friday going to that, you better believe that the enemy is not going to like actual faith steps. As soon as you decide to share your faith for an hour or work on being bold, isn't it crazy how many just excuses come up 
of just, oh, wow, I can't this Friday because of this, or, oh, I'd love to make it to the event, but I had seven hours instead of eight hours of sleep, or this project's coming up, and it's pretty important. There's always so many things that come up, and you have to wonder why. It sounds like a decent Christian thought, too. You know, it's like, oh, I can't make maybe this PCS and share the gospel. I'm a little rusty, but next week I'll go for sure. I just really need a break this week, or I really would share it with my friend, but, you know, we're good friends, and it'd be better to share with them later once we're even closer. Those sound like Christian thoughts. You know, it sounds like you're caring about them or that you do want it, but you better believe that if those work for you, if those good thoughts will keep you from doing the Lord's work, that the enemy is going to keep sending those to you. He does not want you to share the gospel with someone that's headed towards a Christless eternity. Better yet, if he can keep us from sharing our faith this summer, how easy will it be for us come fall outreach to struggle with doubt, feelings of inadequacy, so many other thoughts that will come up that we will feel not ready to share with the hundreds of students that we'll meet within weeks at the start of the semester. And one step further from that, if we are too scared to maybe participate in fall outreach or share the gospel with someone, what's going to happen when there's a mission experience or an opportunity that comes up? How can we be expected to share the gospel overseas and be a part of something like that where there's language barriers, you're going to be struggling with isolation, maybe there's inner group problems that are going on? How are you going to be able to share the gospel with all of that pressure, with all of those things, if back in the States at Chico State, you were too scared to invite a friend to lunch in English casually, and you know they'd say yes. That's a really important thought, especially if you are considering doing some type of ministry, whether it's being a part of like a church life group or going overseas, like whatever it is. Now is probably the easiest time that you'll have to really build up these experiences to understand what it's like to share the gospel, to have awkward conversations when people are texting you to come share the gospel on a Friday, like you're not going to get experiences like that when you're working full time and you have kids and a wife or a husband at home and you're just worried about like going to the store if you have enough time. You're not going to have lots of time to just hang out with friends and walk around on campus and meet people. Like we're in such a prime spot right now, not only to share the gospel and save souls now, but to prepare ourselves for our entire future not just till we're 59, not just till we can collect shells for the rest of our lives. Maybe something you guys can do right now is praying for five minutes every day for the world, just like the Joshua Project on Reach of the Day. That's a really simple, practical application that you guys can do to really take steps of faith today, tomorrow, and dealing with the struggles of you know, sharing the gospel if you're uncomfortable. Guaranteed, if you're praying for the unreached, you're going to have a heart for the nations. You're going to have a heart for people. That is a result of prayer of others. And maybe you meet a student in two months from now, and you've been praying consistently for the unreached just for a couple minutes every morning. And they uh, commit their lives to Christ, they're interested in meeting up, and you say, hey, come along with me. We're going to wake up at 7 a.m. and pray for a few minutes. And they do that with you. They do that for three or four years while they're in school. And because of that experience of their heart, not even just your own at that point, but theirs growing through that prayer, maybe they decide to go overseas and you can really guide them to be in the mission field. If you can do that with two people, then it would make more sense for you to stay here and send those two people over. You can have a bigger impact on the mission field if you send two people over as a result of building into them and investing in them. So mission work doesn't just mean, okay, yeah, you're going overseas, it counts for you, but if you're just planning on being at college and staying here, then you don't have to listen to this talk. God calls all of us to go to the ends of the earth and share the gospel and to do that in a strategic way. And we can do that right here at Chico State. So another reality that we need to be made aware of is that of hell. My second point is that hell is real and incomparable. Every person in every unreached people group is headed this way because of their sin, and they have not even heard the name of Jesus. 
They have not been made righteous by the blood of Christ because they have not accepted the good news of Jesus. Matthew 13, 49 through 50 says this. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous, the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Revelation 14, 11, And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. It's not a suggestion to maybe care about someone a little bit and share the gospel because it's, it's kind of a nice thing to do. That is their eternity. I want you guys to think about that for just a moment here. Hell is real. And billions of people are headed that way. And God has called us to play a part in saving those people. He has equipped us with the gospel that we can take it and share it with them at risk of awkwardness, maybe a friendship being lost. In an extreme case, maybe getting sent back to America if you can't go back to a certain country for sharing. All of that. There are verses that talk about no one can separate your soul from going to heaven. The worst they can do is destroy your body, but they can never take away your relationship with God. It's funny to even think about the worst case scenario. Like it's, it's all so small, whether it's awkwardness or getting sent back to whatever it is. Like what could be worse than someone, a single person going to hell? I don't know. This is a world-shaking reality. If you believe that the Bible is real, then this is real as well, these verses talking about hell. And if this is real, it's not something that we should only think about during a sermon or maybe a quiet time on a verse like this. These thoughts and these verses should be what gets you and me up from bed every morning, earnestly praying for the lost and boldly sharing our faith. Like, this is serious. Remember the distraction monster from the book I was reading earlier? If you didn't think it was that important, or maybe you weren't affected by that, then I want to ask you when the last time you thought about the reality, the saddening reality of hell was. We should be praying and asking God to help us live with an understanding of these realities, that he would wake us up from the distractions of the world that we live in. Our verse I want to challenge you guys with tonight is Romans 10, 14 through 15. How then can they call on the one that they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. I hope that this verse in light of the other ones is a light bulb above your head as you read it. I hope it connects how someone cannot know Jesus to calling on Jesus to how you can make a difference. You can just follow the pattern back up the verse. You get sent out. You preach. They hear it. All of those things, like let's walk through it. All of them happen as a result of the last, except for one. How can they call if they have not believed in? So if they're believing, they are calling. And how can they believe if they have not heard? If they hear the gospel, some will believe. And how can they hear without, without someone preaching to them? If we preach, they will hear. And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? If we are sent, will we preach? That's the one that we can take control of, that we take ownership for in that verse. Are we willing to be sent? Something to think about. As I just went over the verse, it's a process. It's not an instantaneous chain of events. It's not a really quick, okay, I, I was sent out and I preached. You know, why, why aren't they calling on the name of the Lord right now? It's a long process that we can't just make a decision right now, tonight, at 920, that, okay, we're going to do this. This is a decision that we make tonight, tomorrow morning, next week, every time we're presented with an opportunity to be sent out or to preach. This is something we have to actively decide. The good news is you don't have to wait 
for someone to send you out. You don't have to think, that sounds really cool. I'll wait till, you know, someone on staff or someone from the church like really says, hey, I really want to send you out. I think you'd be good to do this. You don't have to worry about that. If you're questioning it, just read the Great Commission. You've already been sent. Isn't that awesome? Congrats, you all made it. We are all a part of God's family, of his, Abraham's descendants, and we are called to preach. And my third and final point for why missions matter is because the ultimate goal is God's glory. The ultimate goal is God's glory. This next part is paraphrased from Let the Nations Be Glad, a book written by John Piper. He says this, uh, John Dawson, a leader with Youth with a Mission, points out that love for the lost is very difficult to feel. It's almost not possible to love the lost. It's really hard to feel deeply for a concept or an idea, whether it's a picture of a random person or an entire nation that maybe you've never even heard of before. We shouldn't wait for a feeling of love to come and share the gospel with a stranger. We love God, and we know that this person is separated from God, so we should evangelize to them out of our love for God. It's easier to share the gospel with a love for God in mind than wait to feel compassionate for someone. Ephesians 6, 7, and 8 says, serve, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. We don't deserve the love of God. Whether it's me or you in this building or someone in a foreign country, we don't deserve it. Jesus shouldn't be some type of product that we go over and have a mission trip and say, hey, look at this cool thing that I have I'm going to give to you. We shouldn't try to sell Jesus. We deserve to be separated because of our sin, but Jesus deserves the reward of his suffering for us when he died on the cross. Our main reason for missions should be his glory and not our own, not anything else but his glory. So I also want to be clear with this. What John Piper is saying is that our main focus should be our love for Jesus. He isn't saying that we shouldn't pray for a love for others that we're evangelizing to or anything like that. What he is saying is that we shouldn't be motivated by those feelings to share the gospel, only our love for God. But we should absolutely be praying for them, developing relationships with them, everything that we can. Another fact regarding God's glory is that we can know that he will be glorified. He will be. I want to share a few verses in both the New and Old Testament regarding this. A couple of these are on your handout, starting with Matthew 16, 18. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Psalm 86, 9. All the nations you have made will come and worship before you, Lord. They will bring glory to your name. Psalm 66, 4. All the earth bows down to you. They sing praise to you. They sing the praises of your name. Do you guys see what the Bible is telling us? These verses don't rely on our ability to glorify God or not. He will be glorified in the end. It changes the question from, will God be glorified? What will I do? Will that make an impact? To, Will I get to play a part in bringing the God of the universe glory? We're going to move on to a few minutes of discussion. There's a couple of questions um, based on what we just read. We're going to take three or four minutes, and then we'll get back into it. At 928, I'll come back up. It should be on there. Cool. All right, we're going to go ahead and move on. Had to kind of jog up here to catch the end of the song. It was a natural fade. It was nice. So our last section of the night has to do with practical steps. We're going to look at some different ones that we can take based on the talk tonight. Um, first, we talked about our lives and the opportunities that we have. We talked about what missions have to do with, what they have to do with, uh, how they got started, where in the Bible they are. Um, then we just talked about why they're important, and God's glory. And now we're going to be wrapping up with how you guys can make a difference based on all that information. Missions are crucial to the world vision, or to world vision in general, because they are a necessity when we look at the world the way God sees the world. We are obligated to bring the gospel to those who don't have it, 
so that God can be worshipped and glorified among the nations. My first point for the practical steps that you can make is to pick up your cross daily. This comes right from Luke 9.23. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. This is not a happy verse that says, try to be like Jesus in a lighthearted way. This verse is calling us to suffer in a way comparable to an instrument of torture. It calls us to sacrifice what we are trying to hold on to, whether in plain sight or in secret, thinking to ourselves that we can follow God in most of our life, but not other ways. This verse says every way. There's no halfway surrender to Jesus. You are either all in or all out. You can't put Jesus on the throne of your life and then try to sit next to him or on the edge, you know, and kind of be there to have a little bit of say as the top dog. If a man goes to his wife at the end of the year with a big smile on his face and tells her, hey, I was 95% faithful to you this year. It was a pretty good year. I mean, that's like an A in school. How great is that? That's terrible. If that sounds bad with a spouse, how much worse is it to play games like that with the God of the universe? There is a story similar to that actually in the Bible. There was a man in the book of Mark who kept every single commandment but still fell short. Considering none of us have come close to that, I'd say this guy's at like 99% faithful to God rather than 95 from earlier. So let's look at this story, Mark 10, 17 through 29, or 17 through 30, which is on the screen behind me. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit murder. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go and sell everything you have and give, give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and they said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Then Peter spoke up, we have left everything to follow you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. John Piper, after reading this, uh, comments this on that passage. It is as though the man stood there with his hands full of money, and Jesus said, you lack one thing, reach out and take my hand. To do this, the man must open his fingers and let the money fall out. The one thing is not what falls out of his hands, but what he takes into his hands. So to kind of explain this quote, the problem is not that the man had money. He didn't lack something because he had it. What he lacked was that he idolized the money. He wasn't willing to let it go to choose Jesus over the money. He refused to give his wealth to the poor, even when Jesus had promised that he would have far greater riches in heaven. If he had the right perspective, he would have sold everything instantly. And the more you feel like you have it together, the harder it is, like the richer you are with, whether it's money or something else, the richer you feel, the harder it is for you to release control. And this story is an example of that. He had pride that he had maybe made a lot of money growing up, whether it was his family or himself, and he just felt in control of his life. And Jesus was calling him to take the one thing that gave him power in life, the one thing that he felt secure with, 
and to trade that, to give it all away and follow Jesus. The rich young ruler from that story is not mentioned again in the gospel of Mark. We don't hear about him anymore. All we know is that he lacked the faith to trade in his wealth. I'm sure that what he thought he was doing made sense. I mean, he lived up to that point, had a decent amount of control. But what we see 2,000 years later, he's not mentioned again his life. What, what did it matter? The, you know, maybe he had a comfortable life, whatever else. For what reason? You know, he's not in the Bible anymore. He is not someone that will share an eternity with Jesus, that will make a difference in the souls of other people. He chose to collect shells with the rest of his life, and that's a tragedy. The practical step for this point is to decide what needs to be sacrificed. I think this applies to everyone here since we all struggle with something, whether it's the same thing or different. Do you need to sacrifice maybe five minutes in the morning to start praying for the lost or praying for the world? Maybe you need to sacrifice comfort and security by practicing sharing the gospel with people you don't know. Whatever it is, I'd encourage you to not just write something down in your handout on a blank, but to really think about this. Think about what it would look like for you personally to sacrifice something. So we're going to have a quick discussion on that. Now that you're thinking about it, I want to give you guys a chance to actually write that down, put it in your phone. Think of something that you can apply that you feel God might be you know, telling you, hey, you're starting to idolize this too much. God wants to have that number one spot in your life, and you can feel that, but you're still choosing comfort, control, security, whatever it is. Um, go ahead and answer these questions with your group. We'll do four minutes. We'll come back at 940. All right, we're going to go ahead and jump back in. If you did not get a chance, I realize that three minutes for five people and three questions is not enough time. If you guys didn't get a chance to uh, go over all of these, I would especially recommend the last question, um, just of your own life and what that would look like to go on a mission trip or something like that. Spend some time thinking about it. Maybe write it down or whatever it is. I think it's pretty important. Even if you don't get a chance to answer it right now, think about it for yourself and what might be holding you back. So uh, jumping back into our next section, we're going to watch a video in just a moment here of what it looks like to be a world Christian. It's actually a drawing, and I want you guys to draw it with the video. It's not artsy or anything. Don't worry about that. Um, but you can use the back of your handout and just use the whole page if you need to draw it. Um, some of it's review from what you've already learned tonight. Some of it's new. There are some key terms in this video that we are going to talk about after. Also, one note about this video by the traveling team that we'll be watching that I need you guys to be aware of is that they have a lot of great material, but at the start of the video, the girl puts a cup of coffee down, and I do not endorse that or coffee at all. So with that being said, let's go ahead and play the video. Anyone got any jokes while we're uh, waiting here? <laughs> so I can kind of continue while we're waiting for a minute, but we are going to be talking about what it means to be a world Christian, kind of putting everything together that we've learned. I'll kind of uh, work ahead so you'll be able to watch on the video hopefully in a minute of what I'm talking about now. But a world Christian is different from a Christian. Both believe in Jesus, live their lives accordingly, go to church. But there are some differences in what that looks like. And part of it is what we talked about earlier, the whole idea of perspective, uh, praying for the unreached, the 1040 window, going on missions trips, um, really like even now here in Chico, mobilizing students, you know, evangelizing, discipling, and helping them see a need for the world because there is a huge need, even if we don't see it. Um, it can be easy to live our lives as Christians, go to church, have friends at church, even go to a life group and eat dinner at a friend's house once a week and just kind of slide by like that. But being a world Christian is looking past those things and seeing the world through God's eyes. Uh, I'll go ahead and kind of just talk 
down the list, and we can go back and visit the video whenever you guys have it ready. Um, but the main point of becoming a world Christian, so there's three. There is word, world, and you guys don't have to write this down right now. We'll see it later. Word, world, and work. Uh, the three verses that we talked about of the Bible and how we see missions there, we see it in Genesis with God sending Abram out into the start of a holy nation. Then later in Matthew with the Great Commission sending it to us. And finally in Revelation 7, 9, when we get a picture of what it looks like for all tribes, nations, peoples, and languages to be proclaiming the name of God. Like that's what it means to be a world Christian, putting those together and really seeing your responsibility in that. The next one is work. And that was kind of what we looked at earlier with the 1040 window, realizing that with 97% of the 3.14 billion people in Asia and Africa and the Middle East, that if there's an option to go overseas to a different place, there is objectively better and more strategic places to go. Um, Romans 15, 20, if you guys have heard of that verse, it talks about how um, Paul does not want to build on someone else's, someone else's foundation because he wants to proclaim the gospel where it is not known. That is very valid. And there's a lot of great trips that are in Mexico and other places like that or other parts of the U.S. that can be great training and opportunities if you guys get a chance. But part of being a world Christian is realizing the need of where it's at and meeting it. So I think that's a very important part. And then lastly is work. And that's what you guys can do tonight. That's kind of the practical application of all of this. Uh, we can go ahead and just cut the video, I think, since I'm already explaining it. Uh, work, there are four points. It's actually in your, did I go over the next point is becoming a world Christian. Uh, that's one of your bullet points. Cool, I did. So there should be a lot of little blanks under it. And I'm going to go fill this in for you right now. And that has to do with a third section. So we talked about word, talked about world, and now work. There are two major things that have to do with work. The first one is going. So you can put go on the first blank. And directly below that, you can put uh, send. Those are two applications that you can think about of what that looks like in your life. With, oh, perfect. Good job. So we're going to go over the go first. Um, one way that you can do it here, which is the first one, is right here on our campus while we are in college, Chico State. It's an amazing place. It's like a mission trip in and of itself. There are tons of students come in from all parts of California, even the world with international students, that you have a chance to reach. That's an amazing way that you can reach people without having to go overseas, spend a year of your life somewhere else. You can be reaching people right now while you're preparing for that or doing something else. The one under that is there, which refers to uh, mission trips. And normally when I uh, hear talks about like missions, or going to the nations, or watching like a video, I just get pumped about that. I don't know about you guys, but I'm ready to go home, like pack my bags. I just feel it. But sometimes I realize that I don't even know where to start. Like I get home and think, oh, yeah, I'm going to go to the nations. Or I like type in like where to get to the nations, you know? Like it's kind of confusing. Um, so I think on your handouts, I put three different parts um, for going there. The first one is challenge mission trips. We haven't done it this summer or last summer because of COVID, but the past, like, a long time, we've been doing mission trips where we send a team or two teams of students. Some of you guys might have even gotten a chance to go on those before, but those are six week long, just during the summer. It's an amazing experience to really see what it's like to um, partner with maybe long-term missionaries and see the work that they do, see the lostness of the students or people that you're reaching there, uh, when I went on my trip two years ago, that was one of the biggest times that God grew my faith from just being there, seeing just hundreds and hundreds of people every day that just did not know about Jesus. It's not like here, where there's a church here, a church on East Ave, a church on the other side of this street, where even if there's a lot of students and just people in Chico that obviously are not going to church and are not believers, but they've heard maybe the gospel or they have at least heard about God. So that is a huge opportunity. Another two are 
I put the links there so you can actually type it in if you're interested. I would definitely recommend doing that tonight when you go home. Uh, it's really cool to go on the websites for GoTo and Journeyman. They're two different programs that offer after-college two-year trips. Uh, they are amazing. Uh, definitely check out the websites. But I would really encourage you guys, if you are considering or pumped about missions or something like that, like don't just lose that feeling. Don't go back into the party with the distraction monster, all of that. You know, there's the realities that you have in your life right now of different struggles or pressures, things that can pull you out of uh, maybe an eternal perspective or things like that, that you kind of just get sucked into the day-to-day. Really take advantage of the opportunities and the information that you have right now to do some research and really think about it, what it would look like for two years after college to go overseas. I've been out of college for a year, and, you know, it sounds like crazy because you need to start your career and all that stuff, but, I mean, time goes by fast when you're done with college. Two years is actually not, like, your whole life. There's so much life you have when you get back to see what it would look like. I think that two-year program is such an amazing way to spend two years after you graduate doing that. The second group of links uh, starts with send, which we already have there. The first one is pray. Uh, you've already done that today, Unreached of the Day. I would really recommend you guys to download the app. It's Joshua Project. It's just called Unreached of the Day, I believe. Maybe just add three minutes on your quiet time tomorrow or the next day and start just praying for the world that way. You can also pray for uh, missionaries that you may know or just people groups from the Joshua Project, from other groups like that, that can start building your heart and growing it up for just the lost, the world, people that you wouldn't normally pray for. I think that's a great way to really grow your heart and help you to see the world the way God sees it. The last one is uh, giving. So I would define giving in this way, as giving any amount to either missions or ministry that's after your tithe. One way that's really helped me to think about this and to actually do it is to set aside like a, a mission fund. If you get paychecks every couple weeks or every month, set aside whether it's $5, $50, whatever you can do, but budgeting it is so much better because when, if someone asks or you see an opportunity, you know, you know how everyone is with money. It's, oh, I, I'm already doing this, I'm already doing that. You already have your budgets, so it's kind of hard. But if you take the decision now to create a budget for that, it'll make it a lot easier to see opportunities. You'll, you'll even be excited to give if you've been saving $5 every month and it's been four months and you have $20 and you see a friend that's really like needing to go on a trip but they're a little behind like, you'd be excited for that. It's no longer, oh, I have $20 that I have to give, but I've been kind of keeping it for lunch later. It's, you know what it's going for. It's in the fund. It's a really great, easy way to start. Also, I am saying, I'm not saying that you need a fund to give. It's just a helpful way. It shouldn't be an excuse of, oh, I don't have a fund, so I don't get to give to missions. You know, it's like, you still have it. Uh, so my practical step for this point is to ask God, where you should be in this stage of life. The reason I say this is because they aren't mutually exclusive and you might be involved in multiple areas of this during the same time or move from one to another. I used to pray and ask if I'm a goer or a sender or what my calling is and I pick one and I just make a million bucks a year and give it all away or I just live permanently somewhere else. But now as I'm kind of realizing through experiencing some of these different things, whether it's going on a summer trip or starting to pray for the unreached, that I can do both of those. You know, you can be a goer and a sender. And right now, more likely than not, outside of summer trips, you're called to be a sender. You're called to pray for people. It might be just where God has you in college, earning your degrees, working hard with excellence. So maybe in the future, you can use that degree overseas and maybe a country that you can't get in without a specific degree. But now because of you working hard and staying here, it gives you an opportunity to go in the future where after college, you might not be locked down in a long-term job or in school. That might be an opportunity where you could more so pray and consider going. So all that to say, whatever stage of life you're in, it's very fluid. So continue to pray through all of these different areas of going and sending, whether it's here or there, giving or praying or all of the above. 
My last point for this section is to find resources to explore world vision. Whether it's reading books, articles, listening to podcasts or sermons, the best way to develop a heart for the nations is to immerse yourself in learning about them. By far, the best way is to read the Bible, not just during your quiet times. Sometimes we forget that you can read the Bible outside of your allotted one chapter of a day quiet time. There's a lot more stories. You can do Bible studies on different people in the Bible. Like there's the Hall of Fame and the book of Hebrews that talks about people doing great things. You can do Bible studies on specific people and really see what it's like for them to have a world vision in their time. And other than that, there's some great books that I put up by David Platt, J.D. Greer, and uh, John Piper. All these are great authors and great books. I read all of them in the last few weeks, just preparing for this, and like they got me hyped for missions. I would definitely recommend um, looking at one of these that you might be interested in. I'm sure you can get it on like Audible, cheap, or on Amazon, or probably half the people in this room might have like Radical or some other books. But I would really recommend reading these, which is why my last practical step of the night is to develop a habit of reading. We all can develop this. A lot of us, myself included, might not be excited about reading at time to time, and you know, you might read slow, or you just don't have time because you're too busy, or whatever else, but we all can read. We all have 24 hours in a day, We really choose, once you understand that you choose what you do during a day, it can really help you take control of your habit of watching a show versus reading a chapter at the end of the night, whatever it is. You should develop a habit of reading, and that's going to bless you in so many different areas of life. So that's why I recommend it, absolutely. We now have um, five minutes left, so we're going to go ahead and do our last discussion for five minutes. That worked out really nicely. And I'll come back and end us at 10. So go ahead and do your last discussion questions. All right. You can go ahead and keep finishing up after I talk if you guys aren't done yet. But there's more packets in the back for part two from 10 to midnight. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Thank you guys for um, listening tonight. We're going to go ahead and wrap up right now. I hope that you guys learned something and will actually apply it to your lives and really consider what this means for your life. Thank you, guys. It's been a fun night. Glad it turned out to be right at 10. Oh, also, in this Snap group, I posted the video. Uh, You don't have to draw it if you don't want to, but it's five minutes, so give it a watch sometime tonight or tomorrow. It's really good. Yep. All right. Have a good night, guys. I'll see you in 10 seconds as I walk down.